Well, good morning again, beloved. It is uh, my privilege and honor to come before you this morning. If you don't know who I am, um, I'm Alan Reeb. I'm one of the four lay elders here at Restoration Road. Um, and every now and then we get a chance to um, open the word and uh, come before you and speak. And that's my job this morning. It's with a little bit of sadness that I say that this is our last message in the book of Hebrews. Um, if you've been with us since last fall, you'll, you've been on quite a journey with us. Pastor Mike started our study of Hebrews by going back and doing a survey of the book of Leviticus to give us a background and an understanding for a lot of the Old Testament imagery that has come through in this marvelous book. And then he began... Um, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, explanation of this beautiful unfolding picture that we have in this book about the supremacy of Christ in all things. He has, of course, been aided by Pastor Nate, who has helped in several messages. Who can forget the angel, angelology message uh, lesson that we heard from Nate several months ago and his t talk on the two mountains, again, significant um, Bill Bear came before us and told us about rest, entering God's Sabbath rest. And Chad Lambert, a while back, came and talked to us about sanctification. And Pastor Mike has repetitively reinforced the idea and the theme of our series of holding fast, of being stable, of being consistent, of being steadfast believers as we walk hand in hand with our Savior. So we come this morning again to the last section of the last chapter, and I would invite you to open, if you have your scriptures with you this morning, to chapter 13, as we draw our attention on these last few verses in chapter 13, verses 20 through 25. Read along with me. The writer says, Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, whom I shall see you soon if he comes. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with you all. You may say, well, that sounds more like the conclusion of a sermon rather than the introduction of one. And you're right, it is a magnificent benediction that is repeated often in many church settings as a closing part of a sermon. Well, it's a fitting closing part of this book. Um, as, he, as he ends this, whoever the author was, ends his treatise with this marvelous benediction. And my purpose this morning, my goal this morning, um, is to give us maybe just a little recap to put a, a bow on the package, to put a cherry on the Sunday of some of the themes that have been developed in this marvelous book. Um, if your fire hasn't been kindled in this study, then I think your wood might be wet. If your bell hasn't been rung, your clapper might be broken. 
It has been just a fascinating study as we have gone back and forth to the Old Testament and into the New to discover the truths about the purpose of Jesus' death and resurrection, the, 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 the salvation that he brought us, and the benefits that we have of being followers of his. So this morning, I just want to do basically a recap and remind you of things that you've already heard. There's nothing new, but just to remind us and to reinforce some of the significant things that we've heard. A few, <clears throat> a few years ago, my wife and I visited Washington, D.C. for the March for Life, and we were there a few days before the event happened, and we took in some of the museums in town. One of the more significant museums that we went to was the Holocaust Museum. Um, if you're ever in D.C., I would highly recommend a visit to this museum. It is, um, I wouldn't say enjoyable, but it is enlightening. The museum's main exhibit is kind of a walk through a history of the World War II. And at the very end of this tour, through a beautiful exhibit of, of that history, there's a small theater with a looped video that kept playing and a few small benches that people could sit in and watch. And what was on the screen was a testimony of Holocaust survivors. They were just giving little snippets into their experience as going through the horrendous event that the Holocaust was. I won't soon forget a little five-minute clip of this elderly now um, lady that was telling the story of herself as a very young person in a work camp under the Nazi regime. They had been released from work on Friday night, um, and that was the beginning of their Sabbath, which they were very infrequently allowed to even observe. And a group of ladies met in the barracks that they were assigned to, and they huddled back in one of the corners, and they began singing a couple of songs, traditional Sabbath songs, thong, songs of thanksgiving, songs that introduced them to the Shabbat that they were about to enter into being Saturday. A man was walking by the outside of the barracks and heard this singing going on inside, he immediately recognized what was happening, and he became rather incensed and burst into the barracks and made a beeline toward this group of ladies in the back corner. And he confronted them, and he said, Don't you know where you are? Don't you know why you're here? Don't you know what inevitably is going to happen to us? What on earth do you have to be thankful for? And this young gal turned to him and said simply, Well, I'm thankful that God didn't make me like one of the people that put us in this place. A wise response to a legitimate question. But that begs the question, doesn't it? What kind of person, then, does God really make? What kind of person does God make? I want to answer that this morning in two very simple ways. Two-point outline, easy to remember. I didn't put it up on the screen because I know that you can remember two points. And these are two themes that have run through the book of Hebrews that will answer that question for us. What kind of person? This beautiful benediction that we just read, there's one section that I want to focus your attention on. 
Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you. Equip. There is a fascinating word. Equip you. God, our heavenly Father, wants to make something of you. He wants to give you something. He wants to create some virtue in you. He wants to equip you with something with everything good that you may do his will. One of the, thing, the things that God wants to do in your life and in my life is to produce stability. Stability. I hope you're not saying, well, I haven't heard that before. Virtually every week, Mike and others have been reminding us that the theme is to hold fast. The admonitions in this book of Hebrews are to hold fast, to be consistent, to be stable. Truth be told, we all know someone who has fallen away from the faith. Years ago, when I was in college, and that is years ago, I would go home and work with my dad. He was a painting contractor. I would work during the summers to pay for my college education. He had hired a young man at the time, and I got to know this man over the course of the summer, and here came to realize that he had written a significant book on suffering. It was so significant that the English theologian John Stott even wrote an introduction to this book, and it was published. But then come to realize that this young man was no longer walking in faith. He had become a convinced agnostic. And upon inquiry, what was it that changed him? What was it that made him now an agnostic, whereas before he was a firm believer? It was premature hair loss that so traumatized him that he lost confidence in the God that he once believed in. I have a son who started his Christian life rather well, going to a Christian school, expressed faith in Jesus early. He played the guitar beautifully and started writing worship songs and composed beautiful worship songs and led worship in Bible studies and at school, only to go through a series of rather hard, traumatic relationships that hardened his heart. And he remains a prodigal to this day. We all know someone that has fallen away. So the admonition in the book of Hebrews to hold fast, to be stable, is a good one for us to heed. Just to remind you of the times in this book, in chapter 2, verse 1, the admonition... Don't drift away. Chapter 3, verse 12. Guard your heart against hardening unbelief. Chapter 4, verse 11. Strive to enter God's rest. Chapter 6, verse 6. Don't fall away. Chapter 6, verse 18. Hold fast to the hope. Chapter 10, verse 23. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope. 
chapter 10, verse 29. Do not throw away your confidence. And chapter 12, verse 2. Run the race with endurance. These are all different ways of saying the same thing. Hold fast to your confession. Don't slip away. Don't fall away. Don't fall aside. It is not a unique admonition to the book of Hebrews. Even a casual survey of other New Testament books and letters will reveal very similar admonitions. Paul tells the Philippians in chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, my beloved, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm in the Lord. Peter, in chapter, his second letter, chapter 3, verse 17, he advises, Be on guard. Don't fall from your steadfastness. Avoid those who are unstable souls. James talks about, in chapter 1, verse 8, don't be double-minded. You, you will then be unstable in all of your ways. Paul tells the Galatian churches in chapter 5, verse 1, don't fall back, stand firm. He tells the Thessalonians in his first letter there, chapter 3, verse 8, now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. And he tells the Corinthian church in chapter 15, Verse 58, therefore, my beloved, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Our Savior even took Peter aside and told him at one point, Peter, Satan has asked to have you. He wants to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith will not fail. What are we to surmise from every book virtually in the New Testament? And I could tell you from John's epistles or Jude, every writer of every book in the New Testament basically makes the same appeal to their audience. Stand firm. Don't fall. What are we to make of these observations? I think that it's a fact that falling away is a potential for all of us. What does that look like? Anywhere along this continuum from blatant apostasy to casual indifference, there's a danger. We sing the song, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Does it ring true? Have you walked that walk? Are you familiar with the tendency to fall away, to leave it behind, to maybe just become casual, indifferent? I don't care anymore. The British writer, poet, theologian G.K. Chesterton, Chesterton said this, When belief in God gets hard, the tendency is to turn away. But in heaven's name, to what? When people stop believing in God, they don't believe in nothing. They'll believe in anything. Some here this morning, or some watching online, are on the edge of falling away. In your mind, 
it'll just take one more straw to break my back. Just one more financial setback, one more untreatable illness or disease, one more personal failing of someone in my world, one more disappointment, just one more dot, 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 fill in the blank. Just one more. I have some good news for you. God wants something different for you. God, our Heavenly Father, in the power of the Holy Spirit, wants something different for you and for me. He wants to equip us to be stable. He wants to equip us to hold fast. It will be a gift from him to do that. Our culture currently is very confused on any number of things. We hear a lot today about identification. What do we identify with? How do we identify ourselves? I want to say something profound this morning, not because it's original with me, but it's because it's a scriptural truth. And I want you to accept it into your spirit, into your core of your being. Take these next few sentences and try to understand them and let God sink them deep within you. You, beloved, are not identified or defined by your past. You are not identified by an illness. You are not identified or defined by your personal sins. You are not identified by the sins of others against you. You are not defined by decisions that you have made. You are not defined by the gifts you have or the talents you possess or the education you have or your accomplishments, successes, failures, or desires to be something. All these things certainly affect you and affect me, and they can cause lasting consequences. I do not mean to say that they are insignificant, but they do not have to define you. They don't have to identify you. There is someone who is bigger than you, outside of your reality, wholly different from you, who has something to say about who you are and what you do. As a Christian, you have somebody else's identity superimposed upon you. That becomes yours. And that person is Jesus Christ. He becomes your savior, he becomes your lord, he becomes your friend, but he becomes your identity. You say, that sounds rather strange. It's worded in a vast number of different ways in scripture, and maybe some of these other ways of defining that, describing that, are more familiar with you. Paul says that you have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. That's what it means. He said, while you were dead in your own sins, God made you alive together with Christ. Peter says that you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. 
You are a new creation. You have been born again with imperishable seed. Those are all different ways of defining the same thing. Your identity now is not yours. It is somebody else's that has been given to you. There is the basis of your faith. There is the basis of your mind's stability and our ability to hold fast. It's tapping into the resource that we have, the immeasurable resource that we have in Jesus Christ. The key to spiritual stability is to accept the fact and to rely on the proposition that your life is now not your own. You have been bought with a price. Your life is now hidden in Christ. It is not just a theological accident that the writer of Hebrews admonishes his audience to hold fast and then reveals the display of the supremacy of Christ in all things as beautifully as he does. The two are linked together, inseparably linked. Your ability to hold fast is bound with your understanding of who you are in Christ and his gracious gifts of salvation and redemption on your behalf. So we have two choices. We can allow the apparent sovereignty of our own history to control our, our identity and determine our future. Or we can allow my identity with Jesus Christ to determine my present spiritual condition and my future outcome. Well, that sounds good, you say. How does it work? How does it work? The same way that we entered salvation, when we received the gift of faith to believe in Jesus Christ, we held out our hands and receive that gift, not working for it, not deserving it, not meriting it, receive the gift of salvation through the gift of faith. The same way that we began the life of faith, we continue the life of faith. I receive stability. I receive the, receive the ability to be consistent with my faith. I receive the ability to be steadfast as a gift of grace from God Almighty. It's the same way that we began and continue the life of faith. It is no different. So the first thing that I would answer, the first way I would answer the question, what kind of person does God make, is a st stable one. Is a stable one. The second thing, the second person that God makes is one that is satisfied, one that is satisfied in Christ's supremacy in all things. John Piper penned this sentence. The greatest thing that I have learned from Jonathan Edwards, I think, is that God is most glorified not by being known nor dutifully obeyed, he is glorified most by being enjoyed. Does that sound radical to you? Have you ever heard that before, that God is most glorified in us as we are most satisfied in him? 
The writer of this marvelous book has framed the beauty and supremacy of Christ in any number of ways. Some of the ways that he's done that is he's used superlative words. Words like Jesus is better, superior, above, final, complete, sufficient, perfect. He's the perfecter, the author, holy, undefiled, and exalted. Those just aren't casual words. They're just not tacked on words. They're very significant words. In addition to those words, some themes have been developed in this book about the supremacy of Christ. The author has revealed that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the imprint of God's nature. Jesus upholds the universe. Jesus has purified us from sin. Jesus is far superior than the angels. He is the object of worship of all angels. He is crowned with glory and crowned with honor. Jesus' death was for everyone. He is the founder of salvation, the devil destroyer. He is worthy of more glory than Moses. Jesus provided justice. He satisfies God's wrath towards sin. He is a faithful, reliable steward over God's people, a sure and safe anchor for our soul. Jesus can lead us into God's presence. He is God's complete revelation. Once and done, Jesus began a new, better covenant with God. Jesus was innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. If you're old enough to remember the Sears catalog when it came out, it arranged the products that it was selling often in three different ways. On any given page, it would have good, better, or best. If you were buying an appliance or a tool or even a house, you could buy a good quality one, a better quality one, or the best quality one. If you're thinking and hearing this morning that, well, Jesus was portrayed in this beautiful book as being better than, better than, better than. You think, well, it's, it's okay then if I settle for less than better. No, it's not. It's like the Sears catalog comes and there only is one thing available, the best, the best. Jesus is the only, the best. There isn't another, you can't, you say, well, you know, the old covenant, you know, it had its flaws, but I, I kind of still like the way that it operated and I'm most comfortable with its, with its ritual and, you know, having one foot in the old and one foot in the new, that's okay with me. That's not an option. Well, maybe a little bit of my merit, you know, is good enough. I, I want to feel a list, little bit justified in God's salvation to me. A little bit of merit is all that I'm satisfied with. That's not an option. It's Jesus' supremacy over all things, finally done over, period. Here is, that leads to incredible satisfaction. Incredible satisfaction. There's a very interesting verse that Paul wrote. I have it. Ephesians 1:17. This is Paul's first prayer in this marvelous letter to the church at Ephesus. 
He says, I pray that the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you spiritual wisdom and revelation in your growing knowledge of him. The antecedent to him is Jesus. I pray that God our Father would give you spiritual wisdom and revelation in your growing knowledge of him. He then lists a series of significant truths about the supremacy of Christ. And then he tacks on something that I want you to pay attention to. He says, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. Also in the age to come, when we are translated into eternity, when we are finally face-to-face with God and Jesus, what else is there to learn? What else is there to know? We'll know. Well, I think that's a misconception of what eternity is going to be like. Eternity, if this verse is true, and I believe that it is, there is an eternal unfolding of the knowledge that we will have of Jesus, our Savior. We just won't be immediately filled with everything there is to know. There will be an ongoing process, an ongoing development, a blossoming of the expanded reality of who Jesus is and what he's done and our understanding of him. And it will take eternity. Not only can we experience the satisfaction of knowing Jesus' supremacy here and now, but Paul prays that that will be unfolded forever in the age to come. We're just in rehearsal here. We're just getting warmed up. We're just getting used to it. And it's a marvelous thing already. Can't imagine what it's going to be like. I look at the book of Hebrews and I can identify two pretty significant groups of people that are being addressed in various places in this book. The first group are those who are unbelievers. They're just not quite there yet. They're fence-sitters. They've heard the truths. They've heard the, the story. They're still not fully decided. You hear admonitions like, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? See to it that no one comes up short of the grace of God. See to it, beloved, that none of you has an evil, unbelieving heart that forsakes the living God. If you happen to find yourself in that camp this morning, that you're a fence-sitter. You've never really made that full-hearted decision, that you've never accepted the salvation that Jesus has to offer. The appeal to you is to believe. Believe. Accept the gift of salvation. Accept the gift of forgiveness. You bring your own brokenness and your own history, your own identity that has a sovereignty upon you and you give it to Jesus and take his his redemption take his perfection take his identity that's the gift that's offered to you 
And I would appeal to you, if you haven't, today is the day of salvation. Do not harden your heart. The second group of people that I believe is identified as an audience in this book of Hebrews are believers. Are believers. And the, the admonitions to them are to hold fast, stand firm, allow Jesus to be your delight and your satisfaction. Let God, our Father, and His Son, Jesus Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, equip you with every good thing to do His will. That's the appeal to believers. That stability, that satisfaction is a gift that we receive with open arms. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. We don't strive for it. We don't pull up ourselves by our bootstraps. We receive the gift of stability and satisfaction as a grace gift to us. That's the kind of person that God makes. Stable and satisfied. I currently really like listening to the worship music from Phil Wickman. He's penned a beautiful song, a hymn actually, called Heart Full of Praise. And I end with his words. I was lost and could not see, but you did not give up on me. To save me from my guilt and shame, you stepped into the world you made. And on the cross of Calvary, you gave your life to set me free. Forever I will sing your name, hands high, heart full of praise. To king of glory once enthroned was laid to rest behind the stone, but death would not have the final say. Jesus, you rose up from the grave. Now standing in your victory, your spirit is alive in me. Forever I will sing your name. Hands high, heart full of praise. After all is said and done, after every race is won, I will see my Savior's face. Hands high, heart full of praise. For you are crowned King of Kings. You are robed in majesty. Forever I will sing your praise. Hands high, heart full of praise. Will you pray with me this morning? God, our Heavenly Father, thank you for the power of your word. Thank you that it's not clever things that we can concoct or a, 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 a series of thoughts that we can put together that make sense, but your word in and of itself is living and active and powerful. And to the people that first read this letter thousands of years ago, we can reread it today and glean the same spiritual insights and the same grace gifts that you offered them, we receive. God, I pray that you would continue to make us more steadfast, more immovable, more consistent in our proclamation of who you have made us to be. I pray that we would be identified as a people that are steadfast, that we hold fast to the truths Come conflict, come persecution, come hardship, come what may. May our testimony be consistent and true 
and ongoing that our love of our Savior is great because his love for us is great and overwhelming. Jesus, this morning, again, we are renewed in our understanding and our commitment to our satisfaction in you. Thank you that you are supreme. Thank you that you are immovable. Thank you that your sacrifice was full and complete and doesn't need to be repeated. Thank you that it was done on our behalf, that we can now stand in you and live in you and have your identity instead of our own. What a gift. What a grace gift. What a gracious God you are. Thank you for my brothers and sisters this morning that are gathered to hear your word and to respond to it. I pray that our application of what we have heard would be in the power of your Holy Spirit and that it would bring glory to you, God, our Heavenly Father. To those ends, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.